and welcome to episode 28 of About IBD. I'm Amber Tresca. I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis in 1989 when I was 16 and underwent two-step J-pouch surgery in 1999 at the age of 26. On this episode, I have Lily Stairs of Clara Health. Lily is not only a fantastic advocate for IBD, but for many other chronic conditions as well, because through her work with Clara Health, she connects patients with clinical trials. Now, we've talked about clinical trials before on the pod with none other than Michael Asso of the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. And the reason why we do this is because clinical trials are so imperative to moving that needle and helping us get more IBD treatments to market so that we can live better lives. Sorry to get a little bit of get off my lawn, kids, but I lived through the pre-biologic age, and it was a lot worse than it is now. That's why we need people to participate in clinical trials. And Lily does a wonderful job on this episode of going through some of the myths that surround clinical trials. And she's going to clear those clouds away for you so that you can understand why it's important to be in a clinical trial and why being in a clinical trial is not always a situation where you're getting the active drug or the placebo. It's a little bit different than that. So without further ado, I give you Crohn's patient, IBD advocate extraordinaire, and head of patient advocacy for Clara Health, Lily Stairs. Lily, I want to hear a lot about your Crohn's disease diagnosis from the beginning. If you could take me through things like how long it took you to get diagnosed, uh, how you got diagnosed, and then... I do want to hear, too, some more about your move from Boston to San Francisco and how that has played into your life. Sure, sure. So at the age of, I'm going to take you back to seven, age seven to start, I was diagnosed with psoriasis, which is, uh, you know, it's a skin disorder. I had these little spots all over me that looked like chicken pox, and At the time, I didn't know that that was an autoimmune disease. And I also was never told that 30% of people who get psoriasis will actually get psoriatic arthritis. And so fast forward to when I was 19 years old and I woke up one morning to the point where I literally couldn't move. So I was just paralyzed in pain, um, every single joint in my body. And I was in and out of doctor's offices. They couldn't figure out what was going on. Finally, I saw a rheumatologist who said, you have psoriatic arthritis. And here I was at the age of 19, devastated because who gets arthritis when they're 19? You always just think of your grandmother having arthritis. And that was really hard for me to cope with. And I know I'm, we're talking about Crohn's disease, but this is I promise it's all connected. Uh, (laughs) All the autoimmune diseases are unfortunately very connected. So about, so I I started on uh, actually right on a biologic because it was so severe. They passed the first few treatments and I was fortunate enough not to have to go through step therapy. And so I started on Humira and that did not work well for me. I was also on a high dose of steroids and Okay, a couple months later, about six months later, I literally, again, out of nowhere, had this 
crazy stomach pain, stomach pain, unlike anything I had ever experienced in my life. And so my mom took me to the ER and the doctors kept asking me, Oh, are you happy at home? Are you happy at school? They thought I was faking my pain. And so I was sent in and out of the ER three times in one weekend because the doctors just thought that it was, you know, mental. It was all in my head, which is, of course, something that women consistently experience in the healthcare system. I was just in an event talking about how, uh, unfortunately, women are just, I think it's like 75% more forced to, to prove their pain than a man in, when, when, they, when they're in the hospital room. Don't quote me on that number. I'll have to pull the statistic later. <laughs> but anyway, so I ended up finally getting admitted. And they had run every test under the sun. And they said, listen, we can do one more test. It's a capsule endoscopy. And it's going to take pictures as it moves through your body every three seconds. And finally did the capsule endoscopy. And I wasn't faking it. I had bleeding ulcers in my small intestine. And it was at that point that I received a Crohn's disease diagnosis. Now, I had never had any of the other symptoms. I, I think some of the classic symptoms we hear about with Crohn's disease are often um, running to the bathroom, and I just never had that. So no doctor ever really put two and two together that Crohn's disease could be an issue for me until it was at such a severe point. And what's really also interesting is that truthfully, the doctors aren't 100% sure if I have psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis and Crohn's disease. It's possible that I just have psoriasis and Crohn's disease. And the joint pain was actually a symptom of the Crohn's. In the end, they say it doesn't really matter because it all gets treated the same way. But just a little extra fun fact. And so uh, I, I, I was out of the hospital. I was hospitalized for two weeks, left the hospital 30 pounds lighter because I couldn't eat the entire time I was there. I was started again on Humira, failed on it, switched to Remicade, got up to the highest dose, added the 6MP, failed on it, built up the antibodies. And, or, or you know what? I've actually learned you're not supposed to say um, that you failed on the medicine as a patient. You're supposed to say the medicine failed you. And so that's, that's really important to me to say now. So I'm trying to shift my, my language around that. I learned that from some other advocates. And finally, I, I am now on Stellara and I've been on Stellara for uh, October is going to be five years of medically controlled remission for me. And I am beyond thankful for that. And so I feel very lucky to have found something that worked so well for me. How old were you at diagnosis? I was 19. So the psoriatic arthritis and Crohn's were back to back. Okay. They were right together like that. And how old are you now? I am 26. Okay, great. So the Stellara got you in remission pretty quickly, actually, because now you've had five years of remission. It was amazing. So I had probably like about two years of, of struggle trying to figure it out. But in the grand scheme of things, I know how fortunate I am um, compared to some of the patients that I've interacted with who have not been as lucky to find something that worked so quickly. Right. And I'm going to quiz your knowledge of psoriatic arthritis a little bit here, uh, because that's a fair point that you could be having arthralgias that are connected to the Crohn's disease, and it's not actually a diagnosis of psoriatic arthritis. 
But are there criteria for psoriatic arthritis that you meet or that you don't meet in some way? What's interesting is that with psoriatic arthritis, you actually tend to find that you get these sausage-like fingers and toes and the psoriatic arthritis tends to present more in just your extremities. So, so again, like, you know, your, your hands and your feet, whereas my joint pain was total body. And so that could be an indication that it's not as aligned with the psoriatic arthritis, but again, it's still difficult to tell. And doctors, I've had different, different doctors say different things. So I've had one say, they think I have all three, one say they think I have both, but again, it, it doesn't really matter. Right. Is psoriatic arthritis progressive though? Yes, I believe it is if you don't get it treated, much like RA, right? In that it will, if it's not being treated, it will progress. Right. So, but the treatment for that would be the same as the treatment for Crohn's disease in many cases. So you're sort of getting a two for one deal if that's the case. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, if we're talking about insurance and we're talking about approvals and, and what's, if you're looking at a medicine, I've been able, I was actually able to get access to Solara earlier than most Crohn's patients. So I got it before it was approved for Crohn's because of my psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis diagnosis. So it's, it's almost the one case where I'm a little thankful I have (laughs) multiple autoimmune diseases. Right. So that's a fair point. It was not approved for Crohn's disease. I don't know off the top of my head the year it was recent. So you were receiving it based on the psoriasis and the psoriatic arthritis, because that's what it was approved for first. Yeah. Yeah. So I was able to get it like it was, it was treating my Crohn's off label at the time. I mean, also treating the psoriasis and maybe psoriatic arthritis too. Many of the biologics or even some of the older medications are sometimes approved for a certain indication, a different autoimmune disease, and then it moves along and they also get approved for you know, a form of IBD, one or more forms of IBD. So I think that's also gives um, kind of a great measure of uh, success and safety in some cases, because we might not have heard of a drug until it becomes approved for use in an IBD. But in some cases, they've been in use for many years for a different condition. And there's all sorts of safety data and so on and so forth that we can rely on. The only thing that's different is that sometimes, or usually most of the time, I guess I can say probably off the top of my head, that biologics, people with IBD, if you're using it to treat an IBD, might need a different dosage. Was that, how did that work with the Stellara? Did you go through anything with that? They started me on the traditional dose, I believe, for psoriatic arthritis. But then there were some studies that have been done. And I and I believe it was after the approval for for um, Stellara in IBD or Crohn's disease that I was able to uh, that my physician said, let's increase the dose because this is the dose they found to be efficacious in Crohn's disease patients. Right. Was it working at the lower dose? I think it's almost half. The dose goes almost doubles for Crohn's disease. It, it was working at the lower dose. Uh, and so I was hesitant to say, let's increase the medication. But I also was just so thrilled to have something that finally worked that I didn't want to push back on my doctor with that. Um, where I have pushed back on my doctor is in adding a methotrexate or a drug to help prevent building antibodies. And there, I have a few different reasons for that. 
Stellara doesn't necessarily um, build antibodies in the same way that some of the other anti-TNF inhibitors do like Humira and Remicade. And I also didn't, I didn't want to be adding another drug when I really didn't feel I needed it. And methotrexate has a lot of side effects. I'm, you know, in my twenties and like to go out and have a glass of wine at happy hour after work. And so I didn't want, there were certain things I didn't want to give up for to, to add a medication that I didn't think I necessarily needed. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And then it's always in your back pocket. If you do get to a point where you decide you need that, then it's always there waiting for you. But right now you're you're doing great. So let's not, you know, change anything. Have you heard about NUCA? NUCA is the National Ulcerative Colitis Alliance, a new nonprofit group working to improve quality of life for people with ulcerative colitis. We're doing this through education, support, community connections, and empowerment. NUCA is different because it is created by and for people living with ulcerative colitis and designed to help you through all stages of your disease journey. NUCA is flaring soon. Subscribe to our newsletter today to get the latest information about NUCA and find out how you can be a part of the community. Go to nuka.life to find out more and sign up. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for Nuka Life. Can you tell me some more about how you manage your symptoms through diet and how you figured out what would work for you and what maybe eh, doesn't work for you so well? Yeah, sure. So I initially kind of got involved in the complementary diet, uh, complementary medicine diet space early on after I was diagnosed, just because I kept being on medicines that weren't working and I was not doing well. And so my mom and I, my mom, who was my primary caretaker started looking into other options. Okay. What else can I be doing to help complement my, my care and ended up seeing a nutritionist who put me on a special, what she viewed as an, a diet for IBD, which was gluten, lactose, and refined sugar-free. And that actually made me feel a lot better when I did that. And I stuck with it eight months, no cheating, <laughs> but it was hard. It's really, really hard with all, you know, sometimes I want to go out and just have a real piece of pizza, not a gluten and dairy free one. And so what I've done is I've developed a, a system where I, I probably follow a specific diet 80% of the time. And then 20% of the time I can, you know, maybe on the weekend, I can have a nice dinner and not worry about what I'm going to eat. I will tell you in the past year or so, I did a program called Mimey, which is specifically for patients living with chronic diseases. And you, it's an app paired with a health coach. And I was able to track my symptoms and correlate that with certain foods. Even though I am in medically controlled remission, I do have certain triggers that I can still feel. So like I, um, my left knee was where everything started. Uh, and I, I have a little bit of permanent damage there. And so I will get pain in my knees, sometimes in my hips. And so I was tracking that. And we found that gluten and dairy, my, my joint pain skyrocketed. And when I cut those out, it was, it plummeted. Uh, and I have the, the charts and graphs that show that. And soy was actually one that nobody really talks about, but I also found was a huge issue for me. And I discovered that after eating edamame, <laughs> which is a soybean or it's, you know, it's soybean plant. And, uh, I was so sick 
And so I said, okay, you know, maybe I actually have an issue with soy and soy is in everything. So I, anyway, so I, so right now I do soy free, gluten free, dairy free and low sugar. And I also take a number of different anti-inflammatory supplements. There are all these diets out there. And this is what I caution patients about. There are so many diets, right? There's paleo, there's vegan, there's autoimmune paleo, there's custom diets. It's you have to do what's right for you. So for instance, vegan would be really difficult for me because so much of the protein in that is soy based, but there are plenty of people who will tell you that everybody should be eating vegan. And I think especially when you have IBD, you need to trust your gut, listen to your gut and do what's best for you. I have a lot of respect for your adhering to such a diet. When I was younger, I was diagnosed at 16. I for sure really restricted my diet a lot, whether or not that was good or bad, I couldn't tell you, but I didn't really eat a lot, honestly. But today, for get it, I can follow zero diet plans. <laughs> it's hard. And I, you know what, but I have, I, I'm here sitting here saying I do 80-20. But, you know, I was on vacation. When I go on vacation, that 80-20 sort of goes out the window and I'm going to do what I want to do. But I definitely don't feel as well because I'm in remission. I don't think I, I don't, I don't feel it as hard, but I still don't feel as well. And I, I know what's best for my body, but it's, it's definitely, it's, it's striking a balance. It's hard. It's not easy. Do you ever have concerns about bumping yourself out of remission, even though you are in an 80, 20 situation? I feel like so many people living with IBD and autoimmune diseases, we, all have this fear, this fear of the unknown and fear of going out of remission. And because I'm on my medicine, I feel really confident in that. And I believe that my diet helps my medicine, but I'm not so sure that me switching my diet to 50, 50 would necessarily throw me out of remission. Um, I have a faith that the combination I have created is keeping me going and keeping me steady. And yeah, there were times, I'll be honest with you, where I had even considered saying, because there's some studies now uh, that, that talk about the idea of de-escalating medication when you have been in remission for a long time and, and trying to not be on these, these biologics. And that has appealed to me. But I'm also at this point where I don't want to give up remission. I'm doing so well. And what if I were to deescalate and then all of a sudden my diseases flare? So it's, and we don't, we have no, we have no research on this. It's really frustrating. We sort of have to make these decisions just all on our own. We figure so much of this out on, on our own. I figured out my diet mostly on my own and what works for me and what doesn't. There's not a whole lot of guidance out there, unfortunately. And with the deescalation, uh, I feel as though with some medications, I can understand why people would want to de-escalate it because of a side effect profile or because maybe it doesn't fit in so well with your lifestyle, the, the medications that you need to travel somewhere and get infused and it takes up a day, things like that, even though they're wonderful medications and work well for so many people. Um, but with Stellara, I feel like it's a pretty low barrier do you so what do you think would be your reason for de-escalating would you ever choose to do that 
so, so Delara does have a really great safety profile, which is nice. All the times when I go to the conferences, the physicians always say we feel really good about this. And I'm actually seeing uh, Dr. Uma Mahadevan. She's my gastro out here and she is phenomenal. And she's one of the PIs on the piano study, which is the study uh, that for, for biologics, which actually you told me about Amber, but I'm just sharing it for, for the purpose of, of your audience. It's, it's an amazing study that is tracking how biologics are impacting women and babies when during pregnancy and breastfeeding. And so I had a long conversation with her about it and said, listen, I'm not ready to have kids right now, but I'm really concerned about my the way that the biologic or these medicines would impact my kids in the long run. So do I need to be thinking about that now? Should I be trying to deescalate? And what she told me is that the medicine does not cross the placenta in the first trimester. She said, it is much better for the baby to be exposed to the biologic than the baby to be exposed to you in a flare and in a state of inflammation. And so that sort of put my mind at ease in that, okay, this is probably the best thing for me to keep doing for me to stay healthy and for my hopefully someday future children. Right. And she is one of the, if not the foremost experts on IBD in pregnancy. And literally I sat in on one of her presentations. I think it was at IBD Congress in Las Vegas and they were going over some really spectacular and so hopeful results from the the piano registry. And she said, literally, she said, I'm not going to tell you that receiving a biologic while you're pregnant makes your baby smarter, but these babies are really smart. So they were me- they were following the babies until they were five. I, I want to say that it's continuing, but I don't know if that's actually the case. But all of the babies were meeting their endpoints. There was no problems. And yeah, they were, they were smart babies that were doing really, really well up to five years later. So while there's things that need to be managed and controlled, things like, you know, receiving vaccines and so on and so forth, and then there's some disagreement as to whether or not you should stop a biologic in your last trimester or when, or you that you should schedule in such a way that you don't receive it in your last trimester, something like that. There's, you know, there's really not great evidence. Uh, I mean, there is some from Europe, but as you know, as you know, Lily, we're not always ones to sort of like take that data and go with it. As Americans, I feel like sometimes we we have to go and create our own data before we believe it. So, <laughs> which is kind of funny. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, you know, for the biologics, it's so far it's been shown that it's it's not that big of a deal. I know a lot of women. I see it in a lot of the moms groups that I'm in that people get very very worried about receiving a biologic. Uh, during their pregnancy, it is it's 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 tough. We're we're all it's and I can I I know that for women when you're pregnant when you're in that situation it can be scary or like you don't you don't want to do anything to potentially harm your baby. But uh, I think that that's why it's important for us as advocates when we're learning about the the data that we're hearing from things like the piano study to bring that back and, and to talk about it with each other and to help people feel reassured that. Um, it's probably going to be okay. And it's better to take care of yourself and make sure that you, you stay in remission. But then of course there's the whole pregnancy remission thing that we hear about that some people will go into remission when they're pregnant. And it makes you question, 
well, do we think we should be maybe studying hormones and the impact of hormones on these autoimmune diseases? (laughs) I love that you said that because I agree with you completely. Um, There does seem to be something there that there are some male hormones that act a certain, you know, have certain tendencies. And then there are female hormones that have certain tendencies when it comes to IBD or other autoimmune conditions. So I really do wish that uh, we could get more study on that and find out some more. Well, I let's keep our fingers crossed and and hopefully keep talking to people at these conferences and (laughs) getting, putting a, putting a little, uh, what is it, bug in their ear to, to get moving with that. I do know that some of the things that we say when we go to conferences and when we speak to some of the key opinion leaders, whether or not they're physicians or scientists or they're in the pharmaceutical industry, you know, they do listen to us. Sometimes you see a light bulb. I've seen that light bulb go off behind people's eyes, uh, usually when we're at a conference. And so that's a that's a really great thing to see. And, you know, the, the future for IBD is, is really bright. The, the, the pipeline of medications that's coming is really, really pretty astounding. So, you know, we have every reason to be hopeful. Hey, this is Stephanie from The Stolen Colon. I'm a mom of two young kids, and I'm living with Crohn's disease and a permanent ileostomy. I'm inviting you to be a part of the conversation on Twitter for parents with IBD and parents of kids who have IBD. Use the hashtag IBDMoms to join in and to get all the info on our upcoming Twitter chats. While you're there, don't forget to follow me at SMLHughes and check out my blog at StolenColon.com. You're a podcaster as well. You have a show called Patients Have Power, which I listen to religiously, and you do that through Clara Health. Tell me a little bit about what you do in that role. Yeah, sure. So I have been feel so fortunate to have the opportunity to have been a member, a founding member of the Clara team. And so what we're working to do is we are working to connect patients to clinical trials. We're working to make the process a lot easier because at this point it's a little bit of a mess. Uh, the burdens on the patient to find trials. One of the only ways that you can find trials if your doctor doesn't bring it up is on clinicaltrials.gov and it's a .gov website. So it's really clunky and difficult to navigate. And so what we're doing is we're holding the the patient and caregiver's hand through the process. We do a lot of work on raising awareness about clinical trials in general, just to demystify that guinea pig mindset, the I don't want to be a guinea pig. And so what we'll actually do is we have, we combine tech with the human touch and you can come onto our website, set up a health profile and, and get custom trial matches. We also have real live humans standing by. So you can call, text, or email us and we will help handpick those trials for you. And we'll even go ahead and call the clinical trial sites. We'll help you get a pre-screen set up. We'll coordinate care. We set up your travel. So we'll call you Ubers. We'll work with your insurance. We handle all of those little frustrations that a patient might encounter to make it as easy as possible so that the patient and caregiver can focus on just getting better. And we're doing this all free of charge to patients and caregivers. What kind of patient would be someone that would contact Clara and receive help in that way? Would it be some, is it rare diseases, ultra rare, common diseases? Great question. So 
any patient with any disease, even healthy volunteers too. But, uh, and, and let's say let's, because we're on the about IBD podcast, let's talk about IBD. We have a lot of patients who come to us in the IBD realm and that's for a number of different reasons. Uh, a big one that we see is because they've maybe exhausted a number of the treatment options that are currently available. So perhaps they've built up antibodies to a number of the different biologics. They're feeling frustrated by their current options could be another reason. So they don't like the side effect profile of what they're on. They don't feel comfortable with the medications they're taking. We've seen patients who unfortunately have lost their insurance or their insurance is refusing to cover a medicine that their doctor wants them on. And so they're coming to us to look for other options. And then uh, we also have patients who perhaps are looking for a complement to their current care. So there are actually a number of diet studies going on in the IBD space right now and supplement studies. So we will have patients coming in who are looking to, you know, maybe do a study on the Mediterranean diet. And that's just one example of, or a couple different examples of reasons that, that patients might come to the platform. But a, a big part of our messaging and, and what I've been trying to share as a patient because I used to be afraid of clinical trials and I used to say I would never do one, but they really can offer access to cutting edge therapies. And it's important to consider them in your suite of treatment options. So, you know, you've done, let's say you're, you've tried Humira, you've tried an anti-TNF inhibitor, and now they want you to try Remicade. Well, I failed on the first anti-TNF inhibitor. Why are you making me go to another one? Maybe that's an opportunity to say, Hey, I want to go see what other biologics are in the pipeline and, and do a clinical trial with one of those. I read an article the other day that most people are willing to help with clinical research. They don't know how, and they don't have the knowledge base that's necessary for them to fully understand what it might mean. Is there a particular myth or misconception that you are dispelling? Like, what's the biggest one that you're constantly having to come up against and to promote understanding? Yeah. So outside of the, I don't want to be a guinea pig mindset, which it sounds like if people are willing to contribute to research, maybe they've gone past that phase. The big one is actually dealing with placebos. So a lot of people say, I don't want to get the placebo. I don't want the sugar pill. Well, actually most trials now you either get the new treatment or you get what is known as the standard of care. And so the standard of care, it means that you are being treated. You're just being treated with something that's currently approved as the approved standard of care. So whatever that means in, in whatever therapeutic area you're in, I'm not sure what the current standard of care is for IBD. Do you know? There's not really one. There's not really one. So let's say, so let's, let's say that, uh, it's, if they're, let's say if they're doing, um, trying to study a new biologic half the patients would be randomized to get the new biologic and half would maybe get an existing biologic that's already been approved for Crohn's disease. So it's not like you're going to sit there and, and your disease is necessarily going to progress because you're just getting a sugar pill. And so that's an important point to note because that's something that often stresses patients out and what's it, quite frankly, it would stress me out too. And so uh, now granted, there are still some studies that do have a sugar pill placebo. So you need to read through and understand that. And, and there are people who will sit down with you and go through the, the protocol and make sure that you understand, go through what's called informed consent. I want to pull on that a little bit, informed consent, because 
you and I, as patients over many long years, have signed reams of paper. Every time something needs to happen, you're signing all of this paper. Um, there's been times when people stood over my hospital bed and waited while I read it. There's been times where, honestly, I probably didn't read the whole thing. So tell me what goes on as far as informed consent in this situation and how rigorous is it? Is there anything, for instance, that's mandated by the FDA and that type of a thing that they have to do? Yeah. So it is a pretty rigorous informed consent process. There is often a very, very long document, which I was just talking with some people in industry yesterday and was like, you guys have got to cut down your informed consent documents because it's ridiculous. You know, when a patient, especially a patient who's considering going into a clinical trial, they're probably not feeling all that great. And now you're going to sit there and make them read a 60 page document filled with scientific jargon that they don't, they, at the end of it, they still don't know what they're signing. And so I think we still have a long way to go in terms of actually developing informed consent documents that make sense to the average person. And something like executive summaries at the top of them that really hit upon the key points would be great. But the FDA does mandate that there is an informed consent process. And usually that involves actually sitting down with the study coordinator or somebody from the study team that where you would be visiting regularly to have them talk through the document with you. And then at that point, you would you would sign it. Right. That makes a lot more sense than having someone there that you could ask questions of in real time and get answers because it it would seem to me that most people would say, I've got this really long document here, sort of, um, <laughs> is, is this a list of all of the things that now I'm signing and saying, okay, if these things go wrong, there's nothing, you know, I don't have any legal recourse. I mean, I'm just saying that that's like you know, I think that that would be a conclusion that a lot of people would would come to, whether or not it's, you know, correct. Right, right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I love that idea of executive summary. Wow, that would be wonderful. Well, I just made that suggestion uh, a couple of days ago. So let's see if anything happens. But unfortunately, pharma, they try, but they move at a slow pace. They're, they're bogged down by regulations. So we can only hope that, that things, but they're trying, they're trying to make it better for patients. Many of them are. And so I think we just need to keep pushing them in the right direction. I agree. And once you've seen uh, the other side of it, and in my work with people from industry, I've, <laughs> I've, I've had the talk where I say, well, why can't you just you know, and um, and then they'll sort of sit down with you and say, well, here's why we can't just. And in a lot of cases, it does make sense. We want things to be safe. We want things to be, you know, legal. We want all of that to be going on. You're really doing amazing work. When I first found out about your podcast, first of all, tell me where it's it's now everywhere, right? You're now on iTunes and the Google Play. Yeah, I Play. think it's Spotify, Google Play, anywhere you can find a podcast, it should be. And if it's not, then let me know. <laughs> right. No, for sure. Well, I use Overcast as my podcasting app and your episodes show up in there. But where, how, what was the impetus for that? Who's, whose idea? Yours? Well, so you're going to think this is funny. This is just classic startup. Um, this is just such a classic startup thing that happened. So we were set up to basically have um, a patient advocate back when we were in Boston, come into our office to do a video. 
and we were, we're going to do a video. We were going to just use it to elevate because we, you know, we do a lot of work with sharing patient stories and, and tips and whatnot. And so I think that we were having issues with our video that day and we were just like, Oh God, like, is this going to be sustainable? How are we going to keep doing more video? Okay. Wait, what if we did a podcast? Because then we don't need video and everybody does podcasts. And so literally that day we set up the room to do a podcast. We grabbed a Yeti mic that we had in the office and we tried to, we, it was like a really echoey office. So we tried to put up this, all of these different things to block the noise. And, and the first, the, the sound quality on the first podcast, it's great content, but oh my gosh, the sound quality is terrible. And so we've come a long way since then. And it's actually been, it, it was sort of this thing that just happened. And now it's been a really great asset. Um, to all of the work we do, especially with the patients have power messaging. And I think it's allowed us to tell a lot of great stories and, and reach, reach a lot of people. I agree completely. And I love that you sort of just fell into it as just circumstance and happenstance. And it is funny how you become, at least I have become, uh, rather obsessed with sound quality and trying to constantly improve it. So... <laughs> And going back and listening to, I'm not saying your first episode, but I'm just saying like, like for myself, I go back and listen to my, you know, first episode or some episodes where something went completely wrong and it's, it's cringeworthy. <laughs> I know. I know. And then you're like, oh God, if like people go back and listen to these podcasts, they're going to think that this is, this is, this is how I, how I run my podcast now. And it's like, it kills you. So I, I always am like, I, I, and I, what kills me is that I also love the content. We've got to bring her back. Her name is Amanda Lustig. She actually is, is a Crohn's disease patient. And so I, I should bring her back on for another episode with good sound quality. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've listened to all your episodes. I would never have, you know, on my end, like it's fine. There are definitely podcasts that I have fired because the audio quality was distracting okay. okay. in so some hard. way. Thank you for listening. Yeah. Oh, I always listen. Um, but yeah, like I said, I subscribe. So it pops up in Overcast and I love it. I don't have to think about it. And then whenever I want to hear my Lily. <laughs> she's there she's there for me and well, I've learned so much yeah that's how I feel about you and your and and your podcast and your kids I love the podcast with your kids I I'm actually glad that I'm getting to say this to you in kind of in person because I I tried to communicate how excited I was via Twitter DM but I just was like this is the most precious podcast I've ever listened to in my life <laughs> They were so cute and <laughs> that I cut so, I mean, I have it all saved, obviously, but for the actual episode, I cut out so much because they have such large personalities that the conversation just went everywhere. And so I had to sort of constantly bring it back. <laughs> well, they also were so smart. I can't believe their age and, and how brilliant they are. And some of the things like, especially some of the ways that, that your son was describing um, your illness, it was really, and, and, and living with autoimmune diseases and the impact on him, it was just, it was fascinating. And it made me feel really good about my future as a mom with, with IBD. And so I wanted to thank you for that. I can't tell you how much that means to me. It's because I was really on the fence about interviewing my kids. I do try to protect their privacy. Um, but at the same time, 
it, you know, it was just a little bit of an experiment, but they taught me things that if I hadn't sat with them and asked them those very pointed questions, I wouldn't have thought about, I, I wouldn't have seen it through their eyes in that way. So, you know, I'm hoping that people are, parents are taking that and seeing it as a way to sort of have that kind of conversation with their own kids and seeing it through their eyes and understanding. Because I think we tend, as parents, we tend to think that we are doing them harm or that they're missing out on something or whatever. And, you know, obviously when you listen to the episode, my kids don't feel that way. And then they both go right ahead and tell me exactly how much they want to know and when they want to know it. So it was just, (laughs) yeah, it was really, it was really fun. So I have one last question for you, Lily, turning the tables on you. What does it mean to you? when we say patients have power. (laughs) Very creative, Amber. (laughs) I wasn't expecting that. I asked that at the end of every, uh, every single one of my podcast episodes. And I do usually put people on the spot. Um, So for me, patients have power is the embodiment of all of the advocates that I have the opportunity to work with. I, have learned so much from these patients, these advocates like yourself, who have taken really, really difficult, unfortunate situations in their lives and and used it to empower others, to empower themselves. And I believe that patient power is, patients have power. It's, It's us. We own our journey. And as advocates and the advocates that I work with, that's, that's the message that we're all promoting at heart. And so that's what patients have power means to me. Oh, thank you for answering. I know because obviously I listen to your podcast, so I know that you asked that question. (laughs) (laughs) But thank you so much for talking with me. I learned something from you. Every time I listen to your episodes, every time I get to see you, which is not near often enough. And every time that I am able to interact with any of your content, either that you're putting out for yourself or that through, through Clara Health. So it, where can people find you on the interwebs? And I'll put it in the show notes, but just you know, if you want to just talk about it for a minute. Well, first of all, right back at you. I feel the same way. I'm constantly learning from you. I've learned so much from you as an advocate. And I have to say in, in the IBD space, you're one of the people I think I've, I've learned the most from. Um, so you can find me personally at lilystairs.com, Lily with two L's. And uh, you know that links out to all my social media. I'm probably the most active on Twitter at Lily Stairs is my handle. And then you can find Clara Health where I work and, and happy to chat with you about clinical trials anytime. Uh, we're at clarahealth.com. And you can also find us on Twitter at Clara underscore health and all of the other social media channels. Although we're, we're also most active on Twitter. And I think I was on the Clara Health website once and like your picture popped up. Is that still, <laughs> does that still go happen? Yes, yes that still happens. So full disclosure, it's not always me who's going to answer, but I might <laughs> always pop up. It's so we are there 24 seven to answer questions. If you come to the site and you're confused about something, you can chat us, but it's my face. It's the chat bot. So just be warned. And you can, you can say hi, Lily. And, and the team will pass to me. They'll say, Lily, this is specifically for you. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that was so cute. I was like, I know her. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk oh, with me today. I really appreciate me on the show, it. Amber. Yeah, always. All right. Thanks. Hello, super listeners. Thanks for making it to the end of the episode. Isn't Lily a delight? She has the best laugh. And I'm always excited when I get to see her at a conference or a patient advocacy event because I know that she's going to teach me something. And I also know that we're going to have a good time doing it together. Special thanks to Lily for taking time out of her day to talk with me. You can find her at Clara Health. And if you go to the website, her picture will pop up. Like, you can chat with her if she's there, or like she said, they'll give her the message. So swing by, see what's going on with Clara Health. See if there's a clinical trial that you might be a fit for. Remember also to hit up Lily's social media sites, and I'm going to put all of that in the show notes to make it nice and easy for you. Thanks again for listening, and remember, I want you to know more about IBD. Mm-hmm.